back in January, I got myself a new Bible. Um, I've been reading the Bible now for 40 years. It's one of the things I knew God was telling me to do when I became a Christian. And it gets to be kind of stale. And so I got a new Bible to, to jazz it up a little bit. And I picked out this Bible called The Voice. And it's really different. It's been really fun. So, David, can you put that picture on the screen? Um, so it's written in a narrative form. So let me do this. Um, it's, so this is, this is out of Exodus 3 and 4. It's the story of Moses and the burning bush. So instead of just telling it in paragraph form, it tells it in narrative form. So there's Moses to God, eternal one, speaking to Moses, Moses, and it, this is the whole conversation back and forth. So it gives it a real new twist to scripture, yet it's still a, a good translation. Anyway, so this morning's um, juxtaposition story is Elijah. Elijah had one really great big moment, a very dramatic moment. And I thought it would be really fun to maybe have a dramatic reading of this story. So I'm looking for three volunteers who might not mind overacting a little bit. <laughs> and then I need one less overactor if somebody's a little shy. Abby, come on up. I, I got you, Abby, on this one. So come on up, Elzira. Um, the, in this one, I'll give you, Elijah, I'll give oh. you, you're the narrator. I'm the narrator. And the action happens between the narrator and Elijah, and then you are the beginning and the end. <laughs> the Alpha and the Omega, you start here as Ahab, and then you're going to end here as people. Okay? So... Yeah, so we're, you're, you just got to read there. Oh. Um, I don't need to read this one? Because that one says Elijah. No, you don't need to read that one. You need to read that one right there. So Jess is going to start okay. as a narrator, and then it's going to be Abby, and then you jump in, Alzira, and then you guys should be on script together. Okay. Yes, you're doing this cold. So I'm all green. You're all the green. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And gave him Elijah's message. Ahab immediately went to find Elijah. There you are. I thought I'd perceive the troublemaker in Israel. Hypocrite! I have caused no mischief in Israel. It is you and your family who are guilty of the very thing you accuse me of. You have turned your back on the laws of the eternal and abandoned your devotion to him. Instead, you have given yourselves to the Baals, the masters of 
Pause right there. I want to leave at the good point. Let's, let's all, everybody, make the cheer of the people. The eternal one is the true God. The eternal one is the true God. You got caught up. <laughs> Thank you all. That went as I expected. Yes. But that story is so cool, so powerful. It deserves a little bit of overdrama to get how great this was. How overwhelming, powerful, and that moment, God was real. God showed himself in a way that we could not deny, have no doubt. So last week I spoke to you about my interest and hunger for revival to happen, like, like now. And I don't mean a revival where there's a tent and a fiery preacher in it and some really good gospel music and people falling out. I'm talking about a revival where... The Holy Spirit comes and convicts people of sins, people who are not in church, people who are in church, who are convicted of their sins, and they just know that God is real, and they come to church, and it's a messy mess, and yet God has spoken of his truth, and there's conviction of soul, and there is life change happening. Kind of teeny tiny bit of what I saw at this camp I was preaching at last week, because this group of boys, should have seen them on Sunday, (laughs) and then they were just, oh, so good to see young Christian men understand who they are, right? It could change the world. So, um, in this messy, messed up world with confusion as to which God is real, for this one moment, the truth was very clear in this story, which is why we love it so much. Experts are saying that we are living in a post-truth world um, because the truth isn't very clear lately, is it? Um, People often say, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Or I'll do you, and you do me, and we'll get along this way. Um, A post-truth person says, yes, there is objective truth, but if that objective truth conflicts with my preferences, then I don't care. My preferences matter more. A post-truth elevates feelings and preferences above truth and facts seeing this being played out so if my preferences matter more than truth and your preferences matter more than truth then we clash truth is not the deciding factor because truth doesn't matter so then what happens is power decides and so you see these power overing conversations and power overing struggles and people becoming smaller and people coming, you know, powering over, and we've got this chaos going on. So in this post-truth world, we have a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion. So who's tired of all this confusion? Elijah was too. So our second story, right after this great story where truth was truth and nobody could deny it, is in First Kings 19. And even after this great, amazing moment of truth, not everyone wanted this truth. This woman in power named Jezebel, it, didn't, it wasn't enough to prove to her because she wanted to keep her power. And so in response, she used her power to enforce her truth. So let's start reading in First Kings 19, verse 2. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that one of, of one of them. Which is, that's what one of them is. 
Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, prayed, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay under the bush and fell asleep. So who, all those you were here last week, we had the story of Jonah. Didn't he have the same prayer? <laughs> I'm so mad. I just want to die sitting under a bush. Um, so sometimes when we pray that prayer, I'm so mad at you, God, or I've had so much. Maybe you're like all the other Bible greats. And that... Yeah, <laughs> and that one too. They might be in a bad mood, right? <laughs> yes, we can pray this prayer too because it's, it's, it's there. All right, continue on in verse five. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. So you've had enough. You're exhausted. You're tired. You're under a bush. You're whatever. Have you ever had an angel personally strengthen you? Me neither. I'm a little jealous here. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And then he went into the cave and spent the night. Notice how God sent Elijah on a journey that would be too much for him. Just, just remember that. Back to, to verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. That's where God was, in that gentle whisper whisper when we are tired when we are done when life feels like it's just too much we want God to be so obvious that the drenched altar miraculously lights on fire and drinks up all the water I have a, a grown teen from one of my, my youth group back in Minnesota his name is Chad and years ago he sent me a letter and it's a letter so you can tell me tells you how long ago he actually sent this to me but I had moved here, and his family, he used to be his church-going family, and cute as could be, and loving, it, their family blew up. And it, it caused Chad a lot of pain. And he sent me this letter and said, Let God prove himself to me in a manner that will leave me no doubt as to his existence. To God, this would be such a little nothing. To me, it would be everything. Yet 30 years later, God hasn't. Chad is angry, still angry and away from God. But when you see him now, it's, like, it's more like, like I'm over that part of my life. Because I know this because I still see him occasionally when I'm back home. When you're angry and exhausted, 
You want God to make himself very, very clear with that big wind or that earthquake, something that leads you to no doubt as to his existence. Yet God still chooses the still small voice time and time again. Has anybody else experienced that? I wish living a life of faith was so clean, so certain that we could that we know God is close to us because of an earthquake or because of a happenstance that can leave us no doubt. But this is not what I've experienced in my life. My faith has been one of wrestling, heartbreak, disappointment, and vulnerability. There have been moments when I've known God to be personal, and there have been no moments when I've felt safe and secure. And then there are moments when my heart has just been smashed. My faith has been smashed. And I wonder why. And I wish I had that angel to give me sustenance. And I don't even get that. And I get mad. Anyway, if we are afraid to live in our vulnerability, we try to make everything that is uncertain to be certain. And this includes our faith. Some faith people really struggle with such uncertainty, with such vulnerability. It is important for them to make God certain. A certain faith is one that we create so that we feel safe and secure. Like we, are, we have this description of God that fits in this nice, beautiful box that makes sense to us so that our life can make sense. A certain faith is one that's all, really it's all about your image and you're striving because deep down there's a fear that you are covering up. And often that fear is that you're not good enough for God. So it's easier to create a God that's certain, that accepts all the good deeds you're doing, accepts all the, the praise you get on a Sunday morning from, from people, all that striving. But it's really covering up a deep fear. And often what happens with those kind of people is they judge quickly. Because to see my messy faith makes them feel insecure, so they just judge me as having weak faith. Now, this is a little segue, but I heard this on a podcast, um, not last week because I was at camp, but the week before, that I just want to read this, and this may become a sermon someday. But this love is about ascribing worth to others at the cost to ourselves. Judgment is ascribing worth to yourself at the cost of others. Think about that one. And a certain faith, thirdly, also seeks authoritarian personalities. Someone who can tell you this is who God is. Someone who can, or you become authoritarian so you can tell others who God is. But what I've learned from 40 years of this adventure of faith in God is that it requires vulnerability, but in the middle of it all, God is for me. He's been for me every time. Through the certain, through the doubt, through the disappointment, I've learned that God is for me, even when my life doesn't make sense. And this is not a blind faith. I've had my Chad tell me that. This is as real and strong as it can ever be because of my vulnerability has been involved. I've gutted it out and I know this deep, deep in my soul. So even in those deep times when I don't know what's going on, I've learned this. Now it's been learned, but I have learned this. 
I have a statement I've used quite often over on my website. There it is. A vulnerable, a vulnerable faith, no, a vulnerable heart full of truth can navigate the broken road of faith. And it references Psalm 119, 71 through 73, which says, My suffering was good for me, for it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. Your instructions are more valuable to me than millions in gold and silver. You made me, you created me. Now give me the sense to follow your commands. Now give me the sense to follow your commands, which are often spoken to me in a still, small voice. So what does hearing that still, small voice require of us? That's your question today for summer extension. But let me start you off with some hints. This requires stopping the noise of your life, stopping to try to control the outcome, and stopping those numbing behaviors so the quiet can't settle upon you. So do you know what Elijah got to find out when he heard that still small voice? Let's go to verse 14. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. First, he heard the still small voice, and he still got to whine to God. Okay? Do not be afraid to do that. Because God delights in us and he's for us. And if our conversation is whining, it's still a conversation, isn't it? All right. Those with certain faiths don't feel the freedom to whine because they don't think that's the right thing to do, you know? But there's such a gift in that. But then Elijah got the plan of what to do next. And that next included a new king, which lead to, would lead to the end of Jezebel, which it did. Very bloody, gory end, if you know that story, and a partner to do the work God had called him to do by inviting Elisha in. Elijah would no longer be alone in this work. Loneliness is hard. And loneliness makes us think of crazy things. Elijah was tired and lonely. But from this point on, he travels with Elisha until the end of his life. Loneliness also lies to us about the truth. Because God also revealed the truth that Elijah did not know. And this is in verse 18. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah was never alone. Despite how he felt. God knows the big picture. Even when we don't. I don't know what the big picture is for Chad's life. It's been 30 plus years. In that 30 plus years, his soul has got a lot of wear and tear. And the original issues are now probably pretty small. But I do know that God is still pursuing Chad in that still small voice, because why else would he want to see me, right? So we begin today 
with this crazy, crazy show of force of God declaring that he is the real deal truth. Remember that? And we're closing with how God is still calling and pursuing us. The truth of God is after us. So let's break into our summer extensions. Over here, we have our small group question to those who want to talk. We have a group project for those who want to work together on something. On the back table here, we have journals for those who just want to write in response to this. Um, again, what's happening in those journals, I think, is 